podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. All right, dad joke to start us off. Uh, Glenn, did you hear about the uh, the constipated mathematician? <laughs> I did not, but I want to. Oh, yeah, he had to work it out with a pencil. Oh. It was a number two. Oh. Uh, that's good and disgusting. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm assuming you have one as well. Yeah, we were talking about nerdy like stuff like Dungeons and Dragons and stuff oh, yeah, right, be- yeah. right before uh, we started tonight. So it's re- almost related to that. I So Eric, I know it's a long shot, but do you know what a trebuchet is? Uh, like, a, like a launching kind of catapult thing, right? Right, a long shot. So, oh, so, oh, <laughs> oh, I like it. Like it. It, it. it went by and then and you didn't even see it was there. And then you turn around and there it was. Yep. There you I, go. I like it. All right. Well, uh, we have a new uh, patron this week. Uh, so big thanks. Welcome to Brianna for, uh, for joining our little group and very much appreciate uh, you and all of our patrons We've just been discussing here for the past couple of weeks some new stuff we're planning here for this year, and uh, very excited to let you guys know more about that here in the very near future. Yes, thank you to our patrons. We appreciate it. Yeah, so I was going to start us off with an email tonight. We received an email from an attorney who wanted to just give some input, uh, happened to be listening, which, by the way, uh, I've had several attorneys reach out to me over the last month in various ways to talk about that they've listened to some of our podcasts, uh, both good and bad, (laughs) meaning that I've had uh, at least one attorney listen to some podcasts uh, to find some cross-examination questions uh, for me during a deposition. And that's something I hope to get into a little bit later, maybe in another episode, Eric, when I can talk about it. But recently so. went, yeah. went through a civil deposition, and it was brutal. It was so brutal. But I, that's my experience with civil cases. It's, it's such a very different environment. So I thought maybe down the road we could even do an episode maybe on civil cases and some of the, the, the differences uh, just share. Most examiners probably won't get involved in one in their career, but they never know. And sometimes, you know, these officer involved shootings might involve uh, civil testimony and that kind of thing. So anyway, sure. Sure. Yeah. But the, the email from the attorney was um, wanted to jump in and just give their view when we were talking about disclosure and discovery a couple right. of episodes back. And so their view is, on the one hand, yes, defense counsel bears some responsibility for asking for discovery. I might argue they they bear a lot of responsibility for asking for discovery, not disclosure, but discovery. On the other hand, counsel needs to master what to ask for, uh, for lots of different agencies, different departments, different disciplines. Personally, I'd suggest erring on the side of disclosure. Worst case for you, forensic scientists, a later habeas attorney asked for something, court decides that was relevant or prejudicial not to have disclosed it, and now you put everyone to the expense of a new trial, it gets overturned, there's some sort of, you know, you're basically jeopardizing the the outcome of the case. And if there was a problem, you may have a cost of defendant years of his life between the end of the trial and a potential uh, habeas. So anyway, uh, then then they go on to say uh, also sometimes their experience when asking for discovery is it turns into what the attorney calls a pixel hunt, where you're searching for a single pixel 
as attorney clearly has some video gaming in their background. Uh, <laughs> so they're looking for the Easter egg pixel where there's one single pixel that can uh, either do some weird effect in a video game or something. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's this search for tiny, tiny minutia and you have to hit it right on the head to get to the next step. Basically, the analogy that the attorney is using here is that if they don't ask for precisely the right thing with the right language and the magic words, then they don't get what they're asking for. So if they ask for X, but the laboratory doesn't call X X, they call it Y, uh, the laboratory will respond with, no, we don't have X. And they don't tell the attorney we have Y instead. And that's where I, I run into this all the time as a defense expert. And it's very, very frustrating that the attorney has to rely on me to know the magic words to ask for. When I see their original discovery requests, they're all over the map. They don't know what to ask for. And so I need to give them those magic words. And, and it's surprising you know, that the, how critical it is to have the magic words to open those doors. They, they want the case file. But, you know, for example, they go to an agency and say, I, I want everything in your case file. And now that agency has a physical case file, and that's all they give. And they don't give the other stuff that's associated with the case, but not in the physical case file. It's these little games that the labs play. And some labs, I should say, some labs are very good and very transparent and put things out there. But some labs, no doubt, give you the runaround. And it's so frustrating. Eric? Yeah, I mean, I think that kind of that first half, that was kind of the, the quandary I was in, the back and forth I was having. Yeah, there's some responsibility in asking for what you need to ask for. There's also the risk of, you know, the lab, it may be prudent for the lab to take on the responsibility of just saying, here, here's just everything. And then now we're, we're definitely sure there's not a problem. Obviously, giving that whole everything there's a lot of work that goes into that, determining what quote unquote everything is, but then also having a method to efficiently provide all of that uh, without having to run photocopies or, or, you know, just do things like one page at a time, just an efficient here, boom, single button. Here's this whole stack of everything that you need. So it feels like, like uh, this is a difficult line to draw as to, you know, uh, as to exactly how to split up discovery and disclosure. And uh, it seems like it's it's a challenge for, you know, a lot of people, not just the two of us talking about it. Yeah, for attorneys, I mean, obviously something that they struggle with as well. Yeah, it's just, um, I, I hate when the laboratory, right, the, the forensic scientists, the fingerprint examiners, I hate when they contribute to the confusion, when it's unnecessary. I know it can be a pain, and I know that you, you know, in some agencies you get a lot of requests, but I, I, I really hate when I see that, that we can t contribute to that problem. I, there are agencies who, and I know some of them listen, I'm not going to call them out by name, but they might know my ire. You know, I ask for something from the lab and they go, well, we don't keep an image of that. Yeah, we looked at that item, but we gave that, you know, that, that goes to this section. You'll have to ask them. And then when you ask that section, they go, no, nah, you have to ask the, the, the other section for it. And you get this runaround where eventually they say, well, you can have it, but you have to come in and look at it yourself. We're not going to just give you a copy. Uh, we're not going to take the time to, to, to get you what you're asking, but you're welcome to come down and look yourself, which means I have to fly to another state usually to do that. It's very, very frustrating and time consuming and expensive when 
if the prosecution asked them for it, they would have it to the prosecutor the next day. That's what bothers me. That's right. that inherent bias in the system that drives me insane. In, unless their answer to the prosecutor is, no, I'm not going to get that to you. Sorry. Right. When it's, when it's, you know, every, every third Tuesday on a new moon, then you can come in and, and when there's all sorts of steps and hoops to jump through, Yeah, it seemed, you know, when I you know did it full time working for a big agency, it was seemed routine for those types of requests to come in and it wasn't always the easiest thing to do, but here's photocopy of all the written stuff here's a cd with all of the digital stuff and boom there we go that that's our responsibility now now my my old agency was like that too they loved putting up the walls and then when the person wanted to come down and look at it then they fought that uh often uh basically saying well this person you know we don't deem them a sufficient expert to come and look at this so you know when the DNA analysts wanted to come and watch the other DNA analysts do the DNA work to make sure they're following the methods. They fought it tooth and nail. So it's this, oh, no, we're completely transparent, except we're going to fight you the entire way. So, well, Glenn, along these lines, I was recently talking to some examiners in Massachusetts uh, who have a requirement that I had never heard of before. Uh, I just want to get your thoughts here real quick on it. Um, And that is, okay, so... It's at least for me, it was pretty standard to include the candidate list for APHIS searches in my notes. Yeah. And that would also be part of disclosure. And it was just a list of the ID numbers for each of the candidates uh, in the uh, in the search. And it included whether or not I looked at that candidate is in the side by side and the conclusion, uh, you know, hit or no hit or or you know, whatever other options there might have been. Uh, but in Massachusetts, it's becoming common to uh, where defense is requesting and judges have you know ordered this. So it's now becoming everyone's requesting uh, not just the candidate list, but the images of the uh, of each candidate of the of the fingerprint for each candidate uh, and the entire card that that fingerprint was on. Mm-hmm. So say there's, you have a list of 20 candidates. That is uh, 20 temperate cards uh, along with the rest of the case notes. Yeah. Uh, so I, I hadn't heard of that happening before. That, that seems like a, uh, a bit much, um, mm-hmm. especially for every case, right? I can imagine a specific case where that might be relevant. Uh, but for just as, a, as an order of you know, normal course of business, that seemed like overkill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I had heard this. And yes, that was my recollection, too, that it was in Massachusetts. So this is the other side of the coin, right? This is why this is why laboratories get so irritated and want to fight going the other direction when they have these sort of ridiculous requests that, like you said, is just going overboard and, and way too much. I have been involved in some cases where defense were, has hired me and said, well, you know, they only gave us a list of the candidates. You know, they didn't give us the fingerprint cards of these other people. Can can we ask for them? And I said, well, I don't know that we want to ask for them or need to ask for them. I personally don't need to see these other ones. And I would usually try to tell them there's no real point. And plus, the lab- laboratory in most jurisdictions is not under any requirement to disclose these. Since these individuals, this is private data, private yeah. information, and these individuals do not have anything to do with this case. That's why they were you know, non-hits. So you can ask for it. I don't need it. 
and I doubt the lab will give it to you, citing private, you know, data privacy. I have no idea what happened in Massachusetts to allow that, <laughs> but I, I agree with you. It sounds like it may have been a case decision or court order. But even if it was a court order, that's just one judge. It's not. I, I don't recall it to be legislation or uh, you know across the board. So they wouldn't have to give it in other cases. It may have been a singular case, a singular defense attorney asking for it. And if they, if it gets asked in other cases, well, then get a court order in other cases too. Uh, and that that would be my suggestion to Massachusetts. Is that is something you could definitely fight on on data privacy. And basically make them go to the judge and get a court order in each one of each those. Time. Yeah. Because um, it may have been a very specific question that the defense attorney had in the one case that triggered this. You then now don't have to do it in every other case. And so that might be the lab maybe even misinterpreting their responsibility here when it's asked for. Possibly. I, like I said, I can imagine that situation where we're now, oh, this Leighton doesn't match you know, mm-hmm. uh, someone in the case, well, let's see who it might match, right? Let's go to the candidate list. But yeah. if the defense expert takes a look at it and is like, well, you have matches this guy. Yeah. Why would you even bother <laughs> looking yeah. at all these other cards? Uh, they just, it just doesn't matter at that point. So, yeah. I, 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 I think it's an odd thing for sure. And um, I, I'm not sure that it's necessary in those other cases if there isn't a court order. Well, we've jibber jabbered on long enough. Uh, uh, you know, recapping previous episodes, let's let's move into uh, the the main uh, topic here for today, uh, and that's is because we have a guest. Uh, yes. So, uh, Bree, thank you so much for <laughs> waiting so patiently. Oh uh, no, of course, for, for us to get through the intro. Uh, but why don't you uh, please uh, introduce yourself to our audience and very much welcome to the Double It Podcast. Oh well, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. My name is Brianne Breedlove. I am the owner of Uncover Forensics, which is a training and consulting company bringing a variety of forensic training courses to professionals in the field. I've also been a crime scene examiner and latent print examiner since 2009, which I'll let everybody else do the math on that one as to how long (laughs) (laughs) that has been. So I've been around a minute and I've had the pleasure of being able to speak at a few different conferences and for study groups. And I also get to sit on the ASB Friction Ridge Consensus Body as an observing member Right. right now. Yeah. So I have my fingers in a few different pies. Fantastic. And welcome to the show. Um, so we're going to get into a discussion on training, uh, in particular, training in person versus training remotely. And, you know, obviously, you're a great person to talk to about this because of the training that you've been doing you know, since starting up your company. Uh, but before we get into all that, you know, there is a, a standard question that we have to, to start with. And that is, how did you f- fall into fingerprints? Yes, I have listened to the podcast before and figured this question was coming. Um, and it was a bit of a, I, I had a bit of a crooked path, if you will, or I shouldn't say crooked, but not the straightest path. I, uh, I, I do recall when I was growing up, so I have a father who was in law enforcement. He was a police officer and his father before him. So I did grow up in that law enforcement culture. And it's interesting things that happen when you're younger, thoughts that go through your head that you don't really know it at the time, but later in life, something happens, right? And you go, wow, you look back and you think, oh, that's right. I remember in high school thinking to myself, watching my dad, thinking, man, you know, I'd love to be a homicide detective, but I do not want to be a beat cop. 
right? I never wanted to work patrol or I just wanted to go straight to solving homicides and, and doing all the detailed work. And at the time, forensics wasn't really a thing, or at least it wasn't advertised. It wasn't a profession. Certainly not high school counselors ever told us about forensic science as a possible career path. And so I kind of just disregarded it. You know, this was early mid nineties and um, I kind of went on my way. I left high school. I wanted to be a variety of things, right? I wanted to be an astronaut at one point or an actress, or I even talked to the Navy. I thought about going Navy to be an astronaut. And I was one of those people that took a minute to figure out where I wanted to land. And I was kind of in and out of college a little bit and working various bartending jobs and retail jobs. I, anyway, I found myself in San Diego, uh, specifically in El Cajon, going to Grossmont College. So shout out to all my Grossmont peeps. I see them at conferences all the time. And uh, one of back then, one of only about two forensic science programs in the state of California, I was actually there to finish up the general education that I had not finished when I went to UCLA right out of high school and everything. And I was going to transfer to state as an astronomy major. And I was going to teach astronomy, become a professor. I had actually tutored it in college and I loved the tutoring process. And so that was the plan. Except the somebody at the time kind of told me, hey, do you realize that your junior college has a forensic science program? He'd known that I'd been somewhat interested in. So I went down the very next day, talked to the program director, changed my major and never looked back. Um, <laughs> so it was, I, I think because it was something that I had been interested in way back in high school, but back then there were not forensic science degrees like you see now. You know, and I think this the knowledge that civilian scientist type people could do, it wasn't really out there yet. So a lot of it was timing and, you know, availability of careers and degrees and things of that nature. So uh, and I actually remember when I was in school thinking to myself, OK, you know what, I think I'll give it about 10 years and then I'll switch over to owning my own company and I'll teach because um, teaching has always with all those different careers that I thought I wanted to do. Teaching was always there. You know, I even thought about being a high school band director. And then, like I said, I was geared up to be an astronomy professor. And coincidentally, I happened to start my company in the same year. Uh, that was my 10th year on the job. Uh, it wasn't wow. intentional. But after I began the company, I kind of looked back and I thought because it was the the comment I'd made to myself in college was sort of a, a passing thought, right? I hadn't really done my career with that goal, but things mm -hmm. in my personal life came about where I started the company. And uh, then I looked backwards and went, oh, that's right. <laughs> I did make that comment. And look at that. It happens to be my 10th year. So here we are. Well, that was certainly a journey. Also, that's pinballing all sorts of different uh, uh, <laughs> different fields and I, areas of study and stuff. I do but, have a uh, variety of different personalities. So. <laughs> well, it, it's it just continues the trend of everyone having their own path into uh, into this field. But uh, what I thought we could start with is just you know, since the you know the topic overall is about training and especially online training, just kind of starting with you know, just kind of all three of us talking uh, briefly about uh, some of the online training that we've done over the past couple of years, you know, obviously with COVID that really pushed things forward a, a whole bunch and, you know, what we've done here with that over the past couple of years. Bree, why, why don't you go and start with, you know, the classes or experiences you've had doing that? Sure. So generically speaking, you know, COVID certainly did change the landscape of training in forensics overall. And to my knowledge, online training 
somewhat didn't exist or at least was not being approved by the IAI certification boards. And correct me, guys, if you know differently. But to my knowledge, before COVID, online training wasn't being approved for certification credit. I don't know if people tried and were denied or if people just weren't trying. I'm really not sure what that situation was, but we didn't have any before COVID happened. And yeah, yeah, I, you're you're right about that. I mean, the the training that was available were usually webinars, like RTI, for example, had had webinars, but they weren't true. necessarily for IAI credits. Or you might have had a small webinar presentation as part of a maybe a regional IAI group, but it was usually a precursor to, well, now that you've had my 45 minute lecture on this topic, feel free to take my longer 40 hour class or attend a workshop at the IEI or something like that. So they're usually either precursors or part of maybe some sort of national program through CSAFE or RTI or some of these other national NIJ type groups. Right. And I do think some of the vendors were doing some webinar and a brief online training, but that was also usually in the guise of, okay, let us show off our new instrument or new gadget that we have to try to sell you. So we're going to teach you about this thing in the process of trying to sell you this thing. But there wasn't really, you know, certification credit courses that were out there for online. And right. then of course COVID hit and nobody can do in person and everyone's life went into complete turmoil. And I had actually started my company. I got the business license and everything else towards the end of 2019. And I actually was geared up, ready to go. And then towards the end of 2019, I actually first I broke my leg, right? And then, <laughs> so that stalled things out a bit. And then we turned the corner of the calendar year and COVID hit. And it was kind of this big, you know, well, what do we do now? And then Alice, uh, Alice White, who I'm pretty sure I don't need to use her last name. You say Alice and everyone knows who we're talking about. <laughs> uh, Alice and I were in a lot of conversations at that time. And she was the one telling me, hey, Brie, you know, get out here because II is starting to approve these online courses. You know, at that time, it was her and one other company, I think, that were doing webinars. And so it was just this immediate shifting of gears. And I think in the time span of about eight or nine days, I went through all the research of different online platforms to do webinars, uh, how people would pay, just creating, essentially creating a whole brand new company because everything is different. The way people register, the way people pay, the way people take the course, the email correspondence, everything's different with online, right? And over about eight days, there was this mad dash to throw it all together. And within eight or nine days, I sent out my first flyer from that conversation with Alice about doing webinars and had a couple of webinars approved by IAI. Yeah, my experience there was pretty similar, actually. Uh, when Alice and I have, were teaching in England in March of 2020, and then I came back and they were struggling to get back into the country. This was right when everything was shutting down. I think they were coming back right around the 1st of April or so in 2020. But they, they make it back. And they had some classes that they were supposed to teach uh, as well in the D.C. area. And it just everything's being canceled at that point. And then by the end of April, Alice was already pivoting to online webinars. And I remember thinking, eh, I'm not interested. And then we get into May and this is still going on. I, I honestly figured by June, everything would be back to normal. And this is just a weird you know, couple of months we just have to weather here. And then I think it was Alice was probably teaching hers in May of 2020. And I started to have this sinking sensation as I was seeing things being canceled out through September and October and possibly November. And then thinking about the recession and money 
like, oh boy, training's the first to go. And then Carrie Hall convinced me. She was like, you should really talk to Alice about this. You know, she's already doing these webinars. She's already got the platform. See if you could teach with her. And, and I hated the idea. I hated online training. I hated taking <laughs> online training. And I certainly hated giving online training. So the idea of trying to convert my courses to webinars was just, uh, I honestly would have preferred a root canal at that time. And if you had asked me the choice, I, I would have. And I just you know realized, you know, Alice is so smart. She has a really good eye for these things. I'm starting to get the sense. I was talking to other training vendors and they weren't interested in doing the webinar stuff at that time. And I was just you know, where do I put my chips in this basket or that? And I, you know, I'd like to think I picked a winner and ended up, you know, going with Alice and just realizing that was the smart move for me uh, as a single consultant, uh, relying on training consulting with no real, you know, source of income beyond that. So I was very, very thankful that Alice allowed me to, she could have told me take a hike, Glenn, you know, (laughs) but she had this platform, she had the infrastructure already set up, and I brought classes to her that she didn't have, and she agreed you know, to host them through her, through her company and so forth and got involved in that. But yeah, I was absolutely against it personally and uh, so thankful that I did not listen to the voice in my head that time. <laughs> and and it was a bit of a mad dash in a way. You know, the entire world had to scramble to figure out what to do, right? And how to do right. more functions online. And the forensic community was no different. And especially in the world of training, you know, like you said, some vendors waited a bit to do online. I think everybody was trying to figure out, well, how long is this going to last? Is it going to really right. be worth it to try to make the transition? Alice was out there right away. I did my first webinar in April of 2020. Um, and it, everybody just had to try to figure it out. And it was interesting to watch how everyone figured it out and what they figured out on how to do it and how to set up the platforms and how to move all the content to webinars. Or then later that summer, I think around July or August, we started to see the more asynchronous, the on-demand style with the pre-recorded content start mm-hmm. to come out. And right. even that involved, okay, what platforms are we going to use? How is this all going to work? And then examiners had to adjust to the, okay, how how do we take online classes? How, how am I going to do this? Uh, even I know that as an examiner, the examiner side of me, as I registered for webinars, I had difficulty with my training approval process because they were, they require things like a date or, or, you know, if it's an on-demand class, it's like, well, I can take it at any time. And it was just, everybody had to make little adjustments here or there. And I I think we came out okay, though. (laughs) I think we've survived. Yeah. Yeah, I I think as a community, we adapted. Yes, we did. Yeah, adapted is definitely the right word. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I had just started with a, a new job, uh, obviously, and when we all got sent home, there was some talk about kind of what I'd be doing, kind of training along those lines. And right away, initially, that kind of got pushed to the side while we kind of focused on you know, getting everything else uh, set up first. And um, so for me, it was a little different in that, well, first off, a lot of the people I interacted with for the company I work for are all over the world anyway. So there was already some familiarity with online meetings. Hmm. Then it became, hey, all right, can we uh, shift to be doing online presentations and demos and uh, and then uh, an online conference and a uh, and then eventually online training? I think one of the, the hardest parts was uh, figuring out how to, how to do the comparison part 
uh, of online training because that was it's always been a big component in the the class I teach. So let's let's kind of talk about that a little bit. Some of the biggest challenges in online training, uh, like I mentioned, you know, the the exclusion class I've taught for a long time has always involved printed enlargements. Uh, you know, put it into the plastic sheet and use the wet erase markers on them uh, to kind of document up what you're seeing and doing the side by side. But luckily, again, just because I work for an APHIS company, it was a little easier to, to shift towards, all right, here's now this APHIS software that you can use to do a similar kind of thing, but, you know, but do it, doing it virtually. Uh, but I'm curious how, what, you know, what challenges you guys saw and how you would tackled actual like comparison exercises. When it comes to, if we're talking about difficulties with online training, yeah. I, I think the biggest difficulty for me personally is knowing how well I am doing as an instructor. Yes. You know, I rely heavily on, if I'm giving a presentation in front of a large crowd or a class or anything to that nature, I'm watching faces, right? I'm looking for the smiles. I'm looking for the head nods to show, okay, they're understanding. I'm looking for the wide eyes when I get that, oh yeah, okay, that aha moment really hit home for them. Great. And that is how I know, one, if I'm teaching with any sort of skill <laughs> or if they're falling asleep, and also if the material is both being understood and valuable to the people that are listening to it. And without that, the online teaching, you do lose some of that. I rely heavily on feedback forms and engaging via email with attendees or running into them at conferences and talking later. And, you know, like the live webinar format, it's just talking into a void most of the time. So there's also that loss of energy that a presenter gets from the crowd. You know, any presentation or teaching, it is like a performance. And if you picture like a rock band, right? And they're playing to 40,000 people, but imagine all the lights are off so they can't see the people. And then there's also no sound and they play their hearts out and they give it everything. And then there's nothing. It's <laughs> online teaching is very much like that. And so all the energy is going just one way. So it can be exhausting, you know, especially the, the live webinar format when you're kind of not getting anything back. And then I think for the attendees themselves, as far as the, if we're focusing just on the difficulties of online training, you know, obviously they lose out on interaction with each other. You know, that networking that happens, yes. the banter, the joking, the, the laughter, just all that interpersonal stuff that comes with real life, actual human interaction, of course, gets lost. It, it can be supplemented with things like discussion forums or online chat boards for the class. And although that helps engagement between students, it's obviously still not quite the same. So, yeah, from my experience, everything that you said, Bree, I mean, your analogy of the rock band, I mean, it's a perfect analogy. That's exactly what it feel, feels like. And as the performer, right, we feed off of that. And for me, there's that teaching high that I get when I, I'm teaching in person. And I, Eric, I, you probably recall I mean, early on, too, in the pandemic, there was an opportunity to do some case APHIS training. And oh, right. uh, you were like, oh, you should just do it remote. And um, we can set that up remotely if you want to do it remotely. And I, again, I was like, no, absolutely not. Let's push this out. And we pushed it out to May and then June and July. And it, I began to realize, oh, it'll be a year before we do this if we don't do this online here. And it's just, again, because for me, that's, that's so important. I mean, all the hassle of travel, getting on a plane, 
spending a night in a hotel, sometimes, you know, eating not the best food or, uh, you know, what all the, the downsides of the road often melt away at the, at 4.30 when I'm done teaching, when I'm sort of enjoying that teaching high, that makes it all worthwhile to me. And that, like you said, Bree, looking at the students and seeing their understanding, their appreciation, that they're really getting something out of it. That's what makes all that travel and teaching worthwhile to me. So when you take all of that out, yeah, it's, it's, it's really difficult to, to maintain that energy and, and communicate with them. I, I can tell you that in my courses that are very comparison heavy, I struggled, although because I didn't have the technology that Eric, you know, you had, I struggled with how do I get students to do these comparisons online? So one of my things I have to do was effectively give them homework. I'd have to send the mm -hmm. images in advance to them, rely on them to do the comparisons, which I will tell you that um, in June 2020, they were good about it. In June 2022 coming up here, uh, they have they they will not be so good about it. Uh, but you you can see a a a, um, a very clear diminishing of. Uh, we've been online now for a couple of years. Uh, I'll show up at ten when it starts at ten. Maybe show up at ten oh one. I got this. Where in before they were showing up thirty minutes early and coming prepared and very almost excited about getting some kind of online training. And now it's. It's very blase to them, and they they um I don't think show up with the same even motivation as a student that they would have had a couple of years ago when it was the only training environment available it's uh It's been a wild ride that's for sure you know Glenn, you brought up something else though that we miss out on if we're doing online training, and that is the food you know when you <laughs> <laughs> I, I did louisiana's ii last year virtually and i was like oh i'm so excited i get to do it in person this year i'm like yes okay i'm gonna get the shrimp po boy and some beignets and i'm very excited to you know i'm always excited to go learn about wherever it is that i'm traveling to so of course you miss right. out on that if it's online as well <laughs> yeah no exactly it's it's these trade-offs that make that teaching and traveling so helpful. And when you start to take those away, then it's just teaching without feedback. And that, yeah, that's rough. I do have, I had to, at some point early on, I, I struggled a bit to kind of know, okay, well, how is this going? And then at some point I just had to sit back and rely upon the feedback forms I was getting and trust the feedback forms. And by the way, to the examiners that are out there, if you do take an online class, do participate in the chat room if it's a webinar and do fill out feedback forms. They are very helpful and the only way that we can gauge how this is going. And after a time, I realized that, you know, all the feedback forms, I, th I think one out of 50 feedback forms would kind of be average. And the rest were all saying, no, this was really great. And this is what I found to be really awesome about this class. So I kind of just had to say, okay, well, I have to trust that and trust mm -hmm. that it's going well, despite not being able to see the faces. One of the things missing out here, I think, I think you guys both mentioned it, is that interaction between the attendees, like, you know, in the room. And like, since I started, like, consistently, when I, you know, would put out you know, feedback forms for people to, to, you know, what's the, what part of the class did you like the best? It was always the, uh, hearing other people, uh, other examiners, other attendees discussing the comparisons that the, their opinion, how they viewed things. Right. Um, I'm not sure 
that that just says a lot about how I kind of set up the class to allow for that to happen or just how bad the rest of my content is. But, um, <laughs> but that was consistent, like the, like what people always described as the best part. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's basically just all of a sudden now gone or really hard to recreate. Yes. Uh, yeah. And it's that, especially for this kind of teaching, I, I think the, the, big benefit of it isn't just hearing the instructor, but hearing that kind of variety of viewpoints that you get from a full interactive classroom environment. Yeah, you do. You lose out on a bit of the, well, this is how we do things. And then also, I know that I've been sitting in a class before and someone will ask a question that I hadn't thought of. And I think, oh, that's a really good question. And the instructor either maybe didn't have it as part of the lesson plan or something. They go, oh, you know, that's really great. And it's beneficial for everyone. And again, that can be supplemented in online courses. For example, I do something at the end of the class where there's a video that I somewhat regularly update as people individually ask me questions. I kind of add to this video at the end of the class going, by the way, one of your former fellow attendees asked this at one point, this is how I would answer it. Again, it's not quite the same. You know, there's also things such as discussion forums within the course uh, on the learning management system, and people can discuss things themselves, sort of like an online forum like Solpex, but it's you know, it's, it's helpful, but it isn't quite the same. It's not totally absent. It's just not entirely the same as in person. Yeah. I, I have a, a class very similar, Eric, where I, I found the same thing. Students were responding to the discussions. It was all about the discussions and hearing how other examiners in a complex case reach their conclusions. That was, and in fact, as the instructor, I almost never explained how I would have reached a conclusion. It was all about how the students did and they could hear so much variety. And, and I found, at least in, in my webinars, I, you lose all that. Uh, and when you try to create a webinar where they have to engage or talk, right? I mean, if you think about like kids in school where they're supposed to have mics and all this, you know, <laughs> you get... Half the students go, uh, my mic's not working, which is total BS, or oh, I don't have a mic or this or that. And, and they're and oh, my video is not working today, or I can't turn the video on, or I can't seem to get it. And so you can't get the video. You can't get whether or not it's true or not. So there isn't even a great system for to require students to attend with a working mic to in any way engage them in discussions. And I particularly tried to do that with one training session where I was teaching bias to an entire laboratory. This was the DNA section. This was the uh, crime scene section, the fingerprint section, and all the sections. And I was meeting with the sections. And that was what I had told you know the, the manager was they all need to have mics or at least have access to a group of mics so that they can talk and we can have a discussion. None uh, that did not happen. <laughs> there was one person who was talking for the group reluctantly. It was the technical leader supervisor, and I sort of forced them as the technical leader supervisor to start talking. That you might hear them if they were together, kind of talking as a group, and then one person might say something. But if they were all separate at their homes, there was only one person talking and very few people contributing, and it was very, very frustrating. And and you're missing out on on a critical part of that teaching. And unfortunately, right, it kind of falls on the instructor. I mean, it's like, well, this is a crappy class. Well, wouldn't it be that crappy if if you all participated <laughs> in the discussion that was right. this was designed around? The, the benefit you are missing out on is because you don't have this technology or unwilling to engage in this technology that will help facilitate that 
that learning lesson. I'm picturing that meme with the blonde lady pointing at the cat and the cat yelling back like, no, it's your fault. <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I never figured out with webinars anyway, how to mandate interaction and discussion. I can do it with my on-demand classes just because the platform that I use. And, but with the webinars, I never could quite figure it out. You know, with the, with the on-demand ones, I can require they participate and comment on whatever discussion's going on, just like a college course would. But the webinars, it's, it's, you know, you can say all day long, what are your thoughts? And maybe you'll get those (laughs) three little dots that appear and you you just wait and it never comes. And yeah, nobody. (laughs) Those Which is exactly dots. how our teachers in, you know, in, in grade school are dealing with students, right? You know, yeah. online yeah. too. Oh, yeah, my camera's not working. Oh, I, my, my son used that excuse every day and his camera was working just fine. And he used it for a year. <laughs> no, there's a lot of, with the webinars especially, I feel like there's a lot of Bueller moments, you know, where I'm just kind of sitting yes. there like Bueller. Anybody? 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 For our younger listeners, that was a movie from the <laughs> 1980s. No, um, no, I, I, I think it also depends on the, the 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 goal of the class, right? So, Glenn, I'd totally forgotten about that uh, that KSAFIS training thing that we had done, I, but I think that ended up being a little more successful because it was it was very specific. You know what the goal was. Yeah, it was a very small group. Three people. Uh, yeah, they were motivated to learn and you know, asked lots of questions, but that, again, that was a, a training on how to use a piece of equipment. Uh, it wasn't more conceptual. Right. Three um, people in a room around that equipment. Exactly. You know, there were some, I think we had some technology hiccups in like getting the, the mics or the screens to work, but since it was, it, there was not like 30 other people waiting, then we could, right. we could work that out. Then the, the, the other classes I did also had the added challenge of not just doing remote, but also throwing in translation uh, mm-hmm. into the class was also challenging. But again, it was like 10 or fewer people as we went through and we're like, okay, you know, doing exercises now, right? Now it's your turn to discuss kind of what your thoughts are on this comparison. All right. You, you know, Bob, no one in that class was named Bob, but, um, you know, you, what do you think, right? Uh, calling specific people out and which is kind of what I do anyway in in-person training, but definitely that kind of tr- trying to get that push was uh, so much more difficult when you're hundreds or thousands of miles away. But uh, let's, so let's move off of all the challenges that <laughs> that we've had. And it felt good to vent. It, it was good to vent. <laughs> But but what are what are some of the the positives that have come out of this? Well, oh yeah, you know we, yeah. we there are some good things that have come out. There are some rainbows and sunshine at the end of these clouds. <laughs> and virtual may not work for every topic, every class, but I think it does work in certain circumstances. Mm-hmm. So, so Bree, why don't you start us off? What, is the, what are the best parts of virtual leaning? What are things that like that you can do there that you can't do in person? Sure. And this is where I nerd out a little bit and get super excited. So, you know, forgive me in advance because there is actually a lot that I can do online, some of which I cannot do in person. Uh, For example, I know from the early days, Alice and I were both talking about how we could actually pack more content into our classes because we're not, you know, you're not breaking for the banter. You're not breaking for bathroom breaks or anything like that. And, And all those discussions aren't happening. So there's actually a lot more time for content. But really, the best part and most exciting part for me is a lot more one on one interaction with every single attendee and 
they get to practice more and I get to help assess their skill set even more than I ever would be able to in person. It's interesting to me that you guys have already mentioned things like, oh, you can't do comparisons online or you can't do this, et cetera. And I'm thinking, yes, you can. So, you know, with the webinars, it's a little difficult, but my company, Uncover Forensics, actually specializes in the on-demand sort of self-paced classes. It's a lot of pre-recorded content and we do have more instructors. I actually just hired eight new instructors. So there's more classes coming out. You see a few of them already on the website for the outlines that have been approved by the cert boards. But every single one of these classes is offered through a particular learning management system platform that universities use. But I have actually figured out a way in the platform itself, there are ways to make assignments where people can respond by video, for example, or by annotation. And I've actually been able to integrate mm. apps to work with the platform for markups. So for example, if I'm teaching a comparison class, every single student that takes it might have the ability, and they do have the ability, either through the automated response annotation option or through the integrated app to do a full markup of a print, whether it's a 10 print or a latent. So I can actually see where they're at in skill level. I know how to help them better. And also every single student gets that practice and they get that correspondence with me. I've definitely sat in comparison type classes before. You know, I've been in over 400 hours of training. And I've definitely been that person who's kind of sat in the back and, you know, I've done the comparisons that the instructor gives me. And oftentimes instructors don't even check my work. They don't grade it. I don't have to turn it in. That's not a requirement to get my certificate. So I'll watch people just kind of casually never complete the comparison exercise, right? You know, present company excluded. I know you guys don't do that. But, you know, in the in-person classes, often people not only will not complete the comparison assignments, but even when they do, the instructor doesn't know what's in their brain, right? The instructor, you can't tell in person, what is this examiner seeing? What did they do? Did they just guess correctly? Did they discuss with their neighbor? Are they actually seeing everything involved? Where with the online, I can have everybody do markups of everything and I can absolutely see where they're at. In testimony, People, I may shoot myself in the foot here by saying this out loud because maybe people won't take the class, but there is actually a video portion where they practice testimony questions and it's not out to get anybody. It's in a positive environment. And a lot of people have said, wow, that was really useful because I've never seen myself testify. I didn't notice that I did these things or wow, it was really helpful to practice those questions where if I'm teaching testimony in person, there just isn't the time. To have every single attendee out of 30 people go through save Wadir questions. And even if they do, they either all listen to each other and kind of gather answers from the people before them, or they get different sets of questions or something to that effect. And even on a crime scene level with online instruction, I have some instructors coming on board to do crime scene type classes. I've told them, I was like, you can put a crime scene diagram in there and people can say, mark a part of the diagram and a dialogue box pops up, right? And they can say, well, I would do this step, you know, in this sequence and blah, 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 blah. And here's what I would do. And here's exactly, and they can write it all out. And the point being that the instructors, we can all understand much better what is going on with the thought processes of all these people taking the classes because of all of the online capabilities. And that has been really amazing. And I, I think a really useful thing, both for the instructor and the attendee, you know, we might not get that personal, like in-person interaction, but I think people are practicing more and instructors are able to teach better to each, every single individual person, if that makes sense. 
Oh, absolutely. I, I can absolutely see all those things, depending on what the class is. There's limitations from what the way we used to do things, right? Like the plastic and markers thing is is expensive and difficult to to use and dirty and time consuming. And, and I, I hope that one of the big things we can learn from all this is looking at all the things we've learned and all the new things we can do from this virtual environment and you know, where where it fits, merge it in with the in-person yeah. so that if it can be done virtually, virtually, perfect. If it really does help to be in-person, all right, do that, but bring in all the stuff that we learned so that we're doing it uh, better uh, in-person as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, like one of the struggles I know sometimes with the in-person when it comes to things like comparisons was, you know, there's so many people, if you look at the comparisons we do, the majority of them these days are on the computer. And they are yeah. digital and trying to teach that there was a struggle in person with the idea of, okay, well, does everybody bring a laptop? Does the instructor supply the laptops? Okay. Then if you do, what sort of software does everybody have on it? And it was difficult to teach to different software platforms. If, you know, this student has Photoshop, well, this one has Lightroom, you know, everybody's got something different. How do you teach that? Or if the instructor supplies the software, well, then people are learning on something that they don't use at their office. And with the online, I can actually tell people, hey, use whatever software you use in casework and then mm. submit the images, the annotated images and markups to me, uh, you know, through the, the system just as a response to the assignment. So they get to practice with their own equipment and tools that they use in casework. So it's almost like I can train them to their own equipment better. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that that is really great, and it sounds like you found at least a technological solution for teaching comparisons online, which uh, that's great. Uh, personally, for me, I found the advantage of teaching online well, a couple. One, topics that I would normally not be able to do in a two or three day course. I mean, if you're going to travel on the road. You usually have to have at least two or three day course to make it even worthwhile for people to go. But now I can teach a topic that's only two to three hours that someone's likely not going to take an entire class on, like error rates or bias or uh, conflict resolution. You know, someone doesn't very... want to sit through 40 hours of error rates? I don't understand. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> but you can create a very condensed three to four hour webinar that imparts all that information and and it has a much higher chance of success. These are usually many of the topics I was teaching in webinars, ones I would teach at conferences and workshops that might have been a portion of a larger 40-hour class. So I was able to really teach some things I wouldn't normally have been able to teach, which was pretty nice. I personally enjoyed just a little time off the road. It was nice. Um, I just bought a new house. I got to spend more time here and enjoy and spend more time with my kids. So I kind of enjoyed actually pulling out of the traveling a little bit. That was kind of nice. And I really liked it for testimony, man. I've testified more probably during the pandemic than I have in the last 10 years. I've, I've been testifying at least five, six times a year during the pandemic using, you know, the same platforms for, for teaching. And I, I look at testimony as a form of teaching. So yeah, that's been actually pretty pretty nice to not have to go somewhere, travel there, get there, and then get sent back home because they're not calling me today. Uh, so we'll see you in a month. You know, it was just it really does cut down on a lot of hassle and time and cost. Oh, and you know, one one other thing too is in some of the courses I teach, 
a little bit of anonymity is kind of nice for the students, right, Eric? Like the course where, you know, you've mm -hmm. got students looking at some complex cases and they're offering an opinion or they're talking. Everyone can see who that is. There's a name attached to that person. The nice thing about some of the online stuff is I can have them submit answers or questions or things like that. And it's completely anonymous. I mean, even when I have them vote on something or, um, in some way engage, a lot of that is just completely anonymous. And I, I think that can be a little safer for the students as well. Right, right. There, there, there's less risk when you, yeah. after looking at an example, and that example was handed to you from Glenn, there's a sometimes a gut instinct to, okay, I'm not going to say ID for this one because I know where... <laughs> You know, I'm not going to say going. exclusion either. Better just play it right down the middle. <laughs> Let me just say inconclusive. Right. Uh, but you know, removing that a little bit, you can um, uh, you can maybe, depending on the person, get a little bit more uh, you know honest feeling of what they're thinking. Yeah. Again, just uh, it removes some of that risk, and uh, not everyone's looking at that person in the moment. Right. True. And you know, adding to the idea of things we can do that we didn't used to be able to do with the online training, we also can reach a much wider market. You know, I have attendees from all across the United States. I've had some international interest and attention. My company's classes can actually be taken by anyone in the world, especially because they're on that pre-recorded on-demand sort of style. And so I think the online training has really broaden the ability to reach everywhere and you get sort of like this cross training of you know people on the west coast teaching people on the east coast and vice versa and it's not so localized or regionalized which i think inevitably will help overall with the industry and help with a little bit of unification and kind of bigger understanding of different ways of doing things yeah. I know Eric, you did and I know I did and Alice has and we do a lot of live webinars and so when you have your international students, sometimes you're starting your webinar at midnight, and I, oh I've certainly had to <laughs> to do that, um, and and was willing to do that, you know, to get you know thirty, forty students from I've had you know China or Australia or Europe or you know other places. Yeah, sometimes yeah, that uh, to be able to get those students, but when you do it in your format, Bree, that pre-recorded, yeah, boy, that that would be a lot nicer. Yeah. And, and people seem to really enjoy it. You know, one thing I haven't mentioned yet, as far as the bonuses of the online training, it's not just about us, right? It's the examiners and the attendees as well. For the agencies, budget wise, I mean, there's a yeah. lot that you can do for I think Good we point. all are aware that online training is more kind to the budget, right? I know if my agency sends me to in person, it's what two to $3,000 easily. And agencies that don't have that kind of money, they can send four or five examiners to an online class for that same price or send two examiners to multiple classes. There's mm -hmm. and there are, I think, in the future, bigger agencies will still continue to send in person. But for example, I actually do have smaller agencies who have said, one, we don't have the budget to ever send anybody to training. And two, we can never host because we're kind of in the middle of nowhere. So we can never fill a class. So this is yeah, really yep. kind of the only format that they can do. I've had examiners tell me I had one woman in the Northeast of the United States say, you really saved me for my certification because my agency doesn't have any money. I couldn't afford to go to a testimony class with all that money, but your testimony online was only a few hundred bucks. So I was able to take it and now I can go get certified. 
So there's monetary stuff and then scheduling. There's lots of agencies that only have a couple examiners. They really don't want to lose one for a whole week. Well, this people can take the on-demand type classes around their work schedule. So if a big call out happens, they can take a week off from class. They can go back to it later and they don't ever really have to leave the office and, you know, have that situation where you somebody's gone at training. So you only have one examiner left and personalized too. Like I'm a mom. I know how difficult it is to leave for a whole week. And I'm calling my son's dad like, Hey, can you cover my nights during this week? And going through the whole rigmarole of finding childcare coverage and things of that nature. And I think for examiners and agencies, it does offer just a really nice option uh, for an alternative for budgets and schedules and things like that. And I hope people in the future kind of combo pack this, right? You know, send people to a conference or say one in-person class and then also do a couple online classes throughout the year or a couple webinars. And there was recent discussion too that the online stuff, because it's so accessible, it is helping us to maintain a skill set and help us kind of stay connected because instead of taking, say, one class every couple years that's in person as our agencies can afford it, Maybe we can do that once during the year, but throughout the year, we can take a a four-hour webinar here or a 40-hour online there and continue that connection to the field and continue having those skills honed if you combo pack it all together. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. Well, to finish off uh, our conversation here, I want to talk a little bit about what has changed uh, from the IAI's perspective on, uh, on what they've set up for approving online classes and, but then also just their training overall. And this is just not really what the IAI is teaching, but what they approve as counting for credit for their certifications and particularly the latent print one, uh, cause that's, you know, the main uh, target audience here. And I think one of the big changes was that when they realized that they had to approve online content, they wanted to make sure that someone couldn't just turn on the computer, wander off, and uh, and then get credit for the class. So part of that was some sort of test or assessment or, or something along those lines uh, for the online content. So I'm assuming then that you guys you know, work to include that for each of your classes? Yes. So I recall when this all began, by this I mean COVID and online training, I remember when I went to submit my very first request to the II cert boards to get my first webinar approved, Alice was amazing. She was helping. I was kind of asking her because she already had webinars approved. And I was asking, hey, what, what do we have to do? You know, what hoops do we have to jump through? What, do, what are they looking for? And she pointed out to me, there needs to be some sort of assessment of knowledge at the end. She's some sort of demonstration that the person not only took the class, but that they, they understood the material and things of that nature. So I did have to add quizzes throughout the class. And for the webinars, there's usually a quiz at the end. And for the on-demand class, there's usually a couple quizzes after each module of content and then a final exam at the end. And actually with the new learning management system that I'm transferring, all the new courses are going to be on this platform. One of the apps that I've integrated actually allows for the videos to be paused and somebody has to answer a question or they can type a question. So it's more engaging that way. And so all of these quizzes and tests suddenly got added, which weren't really a part of in-person classes before. 
But Eric, I think you just in a private conversation recently mentioned that the II is now asking new in-person classes to have some sort of test at the end, correct? And I'm kind of wondering if that stemmed from all these online classes requiring some sort of test. So now maybe the in-person classes are as well? That's what I'm kind of, it's the impression I'm getting. So if you, if you go to the, the approval form to, you know, that you have to send in to the IAI with all that, the details of the class. Mm-hmm. Previously, I went back and looked at the, the one I had to fill out like a year or two ago. It asked, you know, how is class performance measured? And that was specifically for like online content. And that now it's just overall, how is class performance measured? Uh, tests, assignments, or both? I, I can double check here in the, I just got the website up for IAI <laughs> just to make sure that. Sure. And, and while you're looking to add to how the application form has evolved. They're also now asking for a breakdown of hours in the class. For example, in online, it used to be you just kind of submitted the form and said, hey, I'm doing this online class. And now it's, well, how many hours are lecture? How many hours are assignments? How many hours are recorded video versus live? And on the syllabus too, that I usually attach, they want to know say you write a syllabus of, I'm going to cover all these topics. They want to know how many hours are going to be spent on each topic as well. And I don't know if this is related to online classes or just an overall change within the II cert board approvals, but they now are actually no longer being required to approve the entire hours of a course. For example, as they look at that syllabus and they look at the breakdown of the hours spent on each topic, if the particular cert board an instructor submits their application to doesn't feel that say eight of the 40 hours is applicable to their discipline, they can approve it for only 32 instead of the full 40, which didn't used to exist. Now, I don't know that that's related to the online advent, but that is another change that has come recently with the II cert board approvals. But uh, so to be clear, looking now on the uh, operations manual for the II certification program, uh, and it lists that to get approval for training hours, either the trainer or the applicant shall submit an application for approval, forward it on to the appropriate certification board for review, and that application shall include, skip ahead, skip ahead, skip ahead, a measurement criterion to ensure learning objectives are satisfied, for example, assignments, tests, or skills assessment. And I, I don't believe that used to be, someone's going to correct me if I'm wrong here, um, <laughs> over email probably, but I, I don't think that used to be uh, part of the uh, of this document two three years ago yeah I, I you know you and I have been teaching in person for a long time and you know we have not required those sorts of tests in in our courses and you know or at or even for a workshop at the II right I mean I don't know that the students sitting there are understanding everything I'm saying and even though they're in a workshop and about to get certificate for that workshop I mean, it's it's a it's a tricky thing because I don't know that the II has dealt with. I'd be curious what you guys have dealt with in the past. What do you do when the student fails the test? Right, right. That that can be one of those very tricky things that I know for some of the companies I've taught for that had in the past had tests. I mean, when I was when I first started started teaching back in two thousand four two thousand five tests were pretty common. And then some of the training companies said, you know, this is actually more of a liability because what happens when they don't, what if they you know, decide to sue and say that, you know, I, I, I failed this test and it's a reflection of you as the instructor and, you know, the, how you taught the material. I mean, there, 
there's a little bit of there there are some pitfalls uh, with with that i mean the intent i think is great and i think the the purpose of it is noble that yeah you want to make sure that people are understanding this material that they're going and getting credit for uh, for their certification but yeah i mean i i see benefits and problems with it yeah and part of it is it's it's you know it's uh it eats into instruction time Mm -hmm. but but i definitely see the the positive side too i think a just writing up a test and handing it out or or having them do it say when they get home it's probably like the easiest way to get through it but uh you know the other option is a skills assessment right so as long as the instructor goes through the class and documents that they see each person doing the thing that they're supposed to be doing on like the exercises. Okay, they, that's a different thing, but then again, that requires that extra effort to document it all. Uh, and what if you see a student who is terrible at what they're doing? Like you see, and, and I've seen this in class. Like I have looked at markings of examiners and went, this person has no business in the, in our business. Uh, do I have a requirement to report that? I mean, if they weren't certified through the IA, they could never pass the test, but do I have some sort of obligation to, to report that in some way, if, if they were. And then what if they lose their job over that? And now I'm in a lawsuit because I've made an assessment and defamed them in some way. I have been spending way too much time with lawyers as I'm speaking. <laughs> I was gonna say, Glenn, you're talking and I'm now starting to rethink my whole company. I'm like, what am I doing here? Maybe I don't want to do this. No, I'm I, it, it's this civil arena I've been in lately. It is it clearly having some impact on, on my perception. And then what about the, the class where half the class isn't interested in ever being certified? They just want to take the class. And then, uh, you know, how do you, you, you know, still uh, be respectful to their time where, mm. uh, where they're like, the test is really meaningless to me. And, but then maybe they change their mind three years down the road. And ah, uh, you know, good there's, point. Right. there's, there's lots to think about when it, when it comes to adding this in. And I, I'm sure that I, I, you know, really considered all of this as well when they put this requirement in. And um, if they got feedback from instructors who have been in this position, and that's that to me is the question. I mean, maybe they did. I, I don't know. But I, I think that the people doing this really are the ones that need to be involved in this discussion, because I, I have seen the wide gamut of it. And I, I can see some of those pitfalls and I completely understand why those right. early instruction companies abandon those tests uh, because of potential litigation issues. Yeah. I remember taking the test of the first class you taught me, Glenn. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, after a couple of years, we stopped doing that. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I've had a, f- I've had a few people fail the online webinar test. So even Alice and I had to deal with, well, what do you do? So, you know, I came up with a plan um, right away where I, first of all, make them go back and basically retake the webinar or watch parts of the webinar that they missed. Usually there's a reason for it. Oh, you know, halfway through, I got called out for about 30 minutes. Like, yeah, okay, well, that's probably why you why you <laughs> right. failed. So you make them go back and you watch that part of it again. And then I have to make a whole new test for them. I can't just give them the same test, but I have to create a new test. And that takes time. And it's it's annoying. I've, I, I've Yeah, I've probably had it happen three three times, two from the same agency, by the way, which, which again, says something to me. (laughs) And what do I do with that information? I just, I retain it. It's in my brain. I've had, I don't know, a thousand students go through and two from the same agency, two different ones from the same agency just happened to fail, you know, out of the three students I've had to fail. I mean, I, I, 
it's it's complicated, no doubt. Yeah, I I think it is an issue, but I think the frequency with which it happens is not going to be enormous, even for hopefully for the in person. <laughs> I you know I say that now, but I may have just jinxed um, it. Um, <laughs> I, but that, that's why I write ninety nine percent of the rules are for one percent of the population. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. true. That's true. Some of the rules we didn't think we would even need to write. Like apparently we have to tell people to not eat Tide Pods. So who would have thought you needed to say that? <laughs> exactly. Um, Exactly. Or to turn off your cat filter. That's always my favorite, you know, by the way. Oh, but it, it will be interesting to see right, the cat filter incident. I was just talking about that recently with someone who hadn't seen it. And uh, anyway, back to the, the topic, though, it will be interesting to see how all of this evolves for the future. Right. And mm-hmm. I I do think that to a certain extent, Online stuff is is here to stay in our personal lives, things that we're doing online that we never did before and in our work lives. And I do think there's enough need for online training for all the purposes I said before, especially agency budgets and lack of accessibility to in-person or just needs that, you know, I, I do think it's here to stay. I don't think either one should go away. I think in-person and online, and when I say online, I mean both the webinar and the more on-demand style. I think all the formats have their benefits and people yeah. should have the right to choose. And I do hope that the cert boards continue to approve it. And, you know, in the future, it's interesting. We've already seen some tra- changes, not just with course training, but for example, different state divisions or regional divisions of the IAI are now doing online training in between conferences. For example, tomorrow I'm actually presenting for Florida division of IAI and Over the next six weeks or so, I'm doing presentations for Pacific Northwest Division and also the Defense Forensic Science Center. And all of that is online. And they're one-hour lecture trainings. So they're not courses. But those are things that probably never happened before. And I don't think people really occurred to them that they could do before. You know, for example, like I said, all these II divisions or bigger laboratories are like, hey, we can actually do trainings in between the conferences. We don't have to do just our annual conference. So although I'm also looking forward to the in-person conferences I'm doing, like yes. I said, I get to yeah, I get to do Louisiana this year. I'm trying to work out Texas. And then I am going to IAI. I'll be both in the vendor booth and then I get to do a workshop with Hillary. Uh, so that'll be really exciting too. We're doing a testimony workshop at IAI. Well, speaking of the the different divisions or di- different remote t- kind of training things from those kinds of groups, I, I I meant to say it earlier at the very beginning, but I think we'd be remiss without mentioning uh, really the agency that California really kind of Friction Ridge. <laughs> yes, the California Friction Ridge Study Group, hosted by CalDOJ. They've been doing this for. Five or six it's, years ago? Oh, no, 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 my friend. It's been since, and I was going to bring them up at some point because I thought to myself before I even came on the air, I thought Derek and Lori would be so mad if I didn't mention. No, I, <laughs> and I, I, I've I wanted a, to make sure to mention right? them. And they, so, and especially being from California, I had to give a shout out to. So, for anyone listening that does not know, the California DOJ has been doing monthly webinar training since I think it actually began about 2012. I, I recall because it began shortly before I left one agency to come to my current one, which was September 2013. So I believe it was about a year before that, maybe around 2012-ish. So they have been doing the online thing for a long time. And what it is, is it's a monthly one-hour webinar. 
and it's on some topic related to Friction Ridge. It is free. You do not have to pay any membership dues, and it is open to any Friction Ridge examiner that works for law enforcement anywhere. So in fact, they have grown to have uh, over 400 members across multiple states, and I believe they're up to two international members. If anyone is listening and is curious to actually find out how to join, if you go to my company website, uncoverforensics.com, there is a page there for resources. It's a free list of forensic resources that are out there. And the California Friction Ridge Study Group is actually on that page and how to sign up. Uh, you just contact Derek or Lori and say, hey, I want to join. And if you still can't figure it out, feel free to shoot me an email. Yeah, that's that's. I've been teaching with them for years now, and it's a great group. I think it partially started as a way to first, because I think they first kind of start off the meeting discussing any of the APHIS issues in the state of California with the, their state system, and then move into some other topic. Uh, they had and- time for other topics? <laughs> <laughs> They no, they do. They they talk a bit about any Cal DOJ news, but then it's grown a bit. For example, the listeners also get an update from Chelsea Shine from the FBI on anything yep. going on with FBI, ULW, NGI, and also how large the FBI database is. Uh, they also now, as of January, get an update from me about ASB Friction Ridge consensus body activities, which yeah. documents are coming out for public comment, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's a one-hour lecture topic, which a lot of them are things that you'd see at IEI. It's it's like IEI lecture level most of the time. And then there's open discussion, which is often used for somebody saying, hey, how do you guys handle this situation? And on that note too, if there's an agency that ever runs into a question, say they want to know, what equipment do agencies use for this particular technique or how do you guys handle this situation? You can email Derek or Lori and they will actually send it out to the whole group and you get group email responses on that. And DOJ handles uh, storage of like recordings of past uh, stuff. I think you have to be in California to, to access all the their old recordings, but regardless, they, they've put together a great group and I know that multiple uh, other states and other II divisions uh, are looking to to copy that format out where where they are uh, because it's been such a success. It has, and the different divisions that are and groups that are doing some of these webinar things, I often hear them mention the California Friction Ridge Study Group and say, yeah, you know, we want to kind of do what they're doing. It's been so great, and they've been doing it a long time already. So you can't talk about online training without nodding their way. <laughs> right. And one last thing, uh, just the thing I think one of the just pet peeves about uh, online training is for the agency where that examiner works, right? If they're in training and they're like out of the building, even uh, still in town, right? They haven't traveled anywhere. They've just gone to like the training room or just the next agency over his training room. They're, they can just stay there, right, for the whole week or day or however long the training is. But for some reason, you have them attending the training from their desk, and the agency won't leave them the hell alone. They have <laughs> to come in and say, oh, no, you got to go do this. You got to sign this or, you know, review this. Or there's, there's some, I don't know what the difference is, but the agency just doesn't seem to understand the, that the same boundaries should exist on the examiner's time when they're in that, in that training. 
Right. I've definitely oh. been, I don't think I've made it through a webinar at my desk without getting interrupted by some detective that walks in or a sergeant or phones ringing. And it's actually part, there were a few reasons I started doing the more on-demand style. And that was one of them was uh, because of those types of interruptions. Also for people that work graves, weekends, or the international folks, you know, both of those things kind of pushed. And also you can offer longer courses, but I thought to myself, okay, this is frustrating trying to take a live webinar and people won't leave me alone. And so, yeah, I understand that. All right. Well, let's close everything out here this week. And uh, Bree, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks you know, for having me. It was me. a good discussion. And uh, you very much appreciate uh, uh, your time and, and just sharing your experiences uh, through getting your company started up and then you know what you've seen so far the past couple of years. Oh, yeah. Thanks again for having me on. And yeah, I hope I hope we're helping people out. Like I said, we're about to pump out a lot more courses this year as I've hired some new people and they're all kind of in development right now. And you'll start seeing them on the website over the next six months or so, hopefully. All right. Well, uh, go ahead and share again um, your uh, your company's uh, website. I think you mentioned it a bit ago, but just um, and maybe if you have a, a uh, something coming up that, or some class you want to highlight as well? Sure. It's so the company is Uncover Forensics and it's at www.uncoverforensics.com. You can see the training classes on there. You know, for example, right now there is a testimony for Friction Ridge Examiners course that is in that on demand style. And that one is approved for certification credit for both the latent print and the 10 print cert boards for both initial and research credit. And it does count for that 16 hour of testimony training that people need for their initial certification. There's also upcoming courses from both myself and two of the new instructors that I brought on. I'm actually making two different comparison classes, which is why I find it funny that we happen to talk about trying to do comparison classes online. And those are upcoming, the first one hopefully in the next month to two months. And I do have Anthony Delmonico and Corey Schroeder are bringing latent processing classes and palm print comparison classes. And all the other instructors are currently building outlines in various latent print and crime scene topics. And once those outlines are done, you'll see them pop up on the website as well. I kind of, I don't like to advertise too far out ahead. So once the outlines are done, that's when they go on the website. And if people are interested in the style of online on-demand classes, feel free to sign up on the website to the mailing list because I do email people as these courses are launched and become available. And you can always email me with any questions, the email address is on the website as well. We also do tailored webinars. So if there's an agency out there that has an interest in a particular topic or, you know, for example, law enforcement agency that wants to be trained on equipment that they have and they need to be taught how to use it, something to that effect, you reach out and we can certainly put together a webinar for you. And then also... As these courses are released on demand, there are going to be in-person versions of some of these courses. So if you watch the website or join the mailing list, you can always see when in-person versions of the online classes are coming, or you can also ask me to host one. So that's coming as well. Glenn, do you want to mention anything? Yeah, uh, upcoming. I actually have a, a course in Los Angeles area that is the Advanced A's of V class. Uh, you can find that class and register for it through ronsmithandassociates.com. And I will be, of course, at, at the IAI this year, and then later in the fall have several other courses. The Advanced A's of v class, which will also be in St. Louis in October, and the Exclusion and Sufficiency class with John Black, which will be in Hillsboro, 
Oregon, which is a suburb of Portland. So if you're looking to go to Portland or St. Louis in the fall, uh, go to ronsmithandassociates.com. And if you're interested in any of those webinars I talked about, I'm still teaching those. I believe my next ones are in June. And then again, in the fall, go to evolveforensics.com and check out those webinars. All right. Fantastic. Well, thank you guys. Uh, If you have any questions, uh, for Bree, obviously go to our website. Uh, any questions for myself or Glenn, you can email us, eric at rayforensics.com or glenn at eliteforensicservices.com. Uh, our webpage, uh, podcast.com, uh, where you can find a bunch of episodes, links to our Patreon, and merchandise for the Double Loop Podcast, which we'll have some more of that coming up here soon. Uh, so anything that's uh, you know, said on the podcast is the opinion of the speaker, not necessarily anyone that they work for. And with that, uh, thank you guys all for listening again and talk to you next time. Thank you, everybody. Have a good one. Bye, everybody. Have a good week.